Hello, everyone, and welcome to the J-Spot. I am Jacqueline Clarizio, a physician assistant from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and today we're going to talk about surgical versus non-surgical rhinoplasties, which is a fancy way of saying nose job in plastic surgery world. And who better to discuss that with than Dr. Kassir, who is a triple board certified plastic surgeon practicing in both New York City and New Jersey. He's been in practice since 1997 and has performed over more than 10,000 rhinoplasties. He's truly a pioneer in both surgical and non-surgical rhinoplasties and has been recognized for both celebrity and influencer treatments. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce Dr. Kassir. Hi, Dr. Kassir. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like this is like a really big topic in aesthetic medicine and cosmetic surgery. Would you agree? Absolutely. I've, I've, uh, I'm a facial plastic surgeon, and for the past 26 years, I've done tremendous amount of nasal surgery, be it rhinoplasty or combination, and also kind of pioneered the non-surgical rhinoplasty in 2006. So what I can tell you, my experience is the nose is a very uh, central and powerful piece in, in the face. It has a lot of emotional ties, and it's life-changing to alter it. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the face is something we look at all the time. And the nose specifically is something that I feel like if people hate their nose, they truly hate the way that they look. So I feel like it's life-changing for people. I think the first question that I have for you, and I think this is something that even providers don't know the answer to that are performing non-surgical rhinoplasties, which is a fancy way of saying nose job. How do you determine if a patient is a candidate for surgical or non-surgical rhinoplasties? Great question. So I didn't do uh, non-surgical rhinoplasties till 2006, and I think I was one of the first ones. And prior to that, there was only surgical options. And then, actually, one of the housewives of New Jersey kept scheduling her revision rhinoplasty, and then she would cancel and say, I have, I have to go film or I have to do this. So finally, I told her, listen, you're never going to have time to get a surgical procedure, why don't you let me just contour it a little bit with fillers, just like we do in your lips and in your face. And sure enough, and that was born, and uh, it was great. So one of the answers to your question is, there's some people who will never get surgery regardless, okay? So if somebody is averse to surgery, cannot get surgery because of a medical problem, really doesn't have any time for uh, recovery or, or um, anesthesia, that they're deathly afraid of anesthesia. These are all good reasons to do a non-surgical procedure on them. Now, there's differences, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute, in terms of what kind of uh, results you can achieve with each. Um, but you can definitely do something for everyone, and it depends on the person. Definitely. So you would say if somebody doesn't have as much time for the recovery, a non-surgical option would be the way to go. Is there any anatomical things within nasal anatomy that they are just not a candidate for a non-surgical rhinoplasty? Like, are there any cases that need to be surgical? So the cases, um, if you have um, something about your nose that you don't like, let's say you don't like the bump or the tip or the droop, and you want to contour that a little bit. And then at the same time, you have breathing problems or functional problems or sinus problems, or you have a deviated septum, or that's the middle piece of your nose that's crooked. 
you can't really alter that non-surgically. So if you have aesthetic and functional issues that you can address at the same time, that's a better um, surgical patient or surgical candidate. But if you don't want any downtime, any recovery, any surgery, any recovery, any of that, you can just do something right now, contour the nose, take it for a test drive, <laughs> get it. See l- how you like it. Right. And, you know, like we say, rent before you buy, then that's um, not a bad option to at least kind of dip your toe in the cosmetic pool. Yes, definitely. So going back to nasal anatomy a little bit, can you talk a little bit about how different ethnicities nasal anatomy is different? Meaning like if somebody is Caucasian versus Asian or African-American? Sure. So the the main differences in noses are the height of the bridge, meaning how far the the bone projects out or sticks out from your face or how much bone you have here. And the tip of the nose and the nostrils. So usually occidental or western noses have a lot of projection, sometimes too much projection, and so you get a hump. And what you want on the side view, you want the tip of the nose to lead the nose, not the bump. So having a bump bothers everyone, okay? Then there's um, the tip of the nose, which is either round, wide, droopy, and that really bothers people Mm -hmm. and then especially when you smile the tip droops down and then there's the nostrils and if you kind of look at someone and draw a line from the corners of the inside of their eyes if their nose or if their nostrils fit in within those lines that's generally regarded there's no hard fast rule but that's generally regarded as normal width so if you take what we call platyrine noses or more flat, wide noses. And those are some ethnicities, whether it's Asian, Southeast Asian, uh, South American, or Central American. Uh, there's very little bridge here, wide uh, nostrils, so you have to actually build the bridge up. You have to add to those noses to make them look a little bit more aesthetic. So, uh, and then the skin type, this, the thickness of the skin is very important in surgical or non-surgical rhinoplasty. So if they have very, very thick skin, it's hard to make, um, a noticeable enough change doing, doing things non-surgically. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And what about male to female? How do you feel like nasal anatomy differs for these genders? So usually, um, Male noses have, they're just bigger, they're longer, and they're more tolerated um, on the face, whether they're a little crooked or they have a little bit of a bump. And that's, you know, for many years, um, social media has been um, kind of the court of public opinion. So even if you do male noses that are really crooked and big and you straighten them out and give them, make them nice aesthetic nose, a lot of comments will be like, well, I liked his nose before. He's a man. He should have a bigger nose. Like it almost makes him a little bit more feminine because it's so perfect. Correct. Correct. So um, so generally their cartilages are bigger. Their um, noses in general are bigger. And they have a little bit more of an access deviation because some sort of a trauma. Um, female noses, especially if they're on a petite, tiny face, just a little bit of longer length or an acute angle here or a droop can make a uh, very uh, aesthetic female face look more masculine and and less attractive. 
Makes sense. So what would you do for my nose? I see you looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that you asked that. Um, first things first, in all these years, I would tell patients, um, if, if they're coming to see us or you, then something bothers them. So mm -hmm. if, if something really bothers you, you have to probably at least consider doing something about it. If somebody's happy with the way they look and their nose, then we leave it alone and we don't even make any suggestions. But and the general rule I have is to make things, especially the nose, not stand out on the face. Mm -hmm. You want the nose to blend in. We had a patient the other day that said, and they say similar uh, versions of this, that they say, I want to look at my face and not just see nose. And that's a good way of saying you just want it to blend in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can see other things like eyes and eyebrows and lips and cheekbones and the whole face just opens up. I feel like filters like on Instagram do that. They make everything proportionate and a little bit more subtle. Nothing's harsh. And I feel like I talk about this a lot and it's on another episode of my podcast, but filters have definitely changed my practice. Do you feel like they've changed your practice when it comes to rhinoplasties? Absolutely. They... Um we even call it a filter nose. So we have uh, traditionally we've had the natural nose, the doll nose, the Instagram nose. Now it's the filter <laughs> nose. The problem with some of these filter noses is they uh, they make your face look younger and better. So expectations have gone up, and you have to you know set realistic expectations with patients, saying you have real skin, real tissues, <laughs> and we're gonna aim for that you know, filtered nose, but mm -hmm. this is probably where we're going to land. Yeah, agreed. I have a very realistic talk with people as soon as they get into my chair that filters are not real and that I can't make you look like a filter because a lot of people think that you can and they think we're magicians, which we obviously slightly might be, but we're not fully there yet. In terms of aging, how does the nasal anatomy change with aging, right? We talk about how the philtrum or the distance between the nose and your lip elongates with time. I always hear, my mom used to say this, when you get older, your nose gets bigger and your ears, gets big, your ears get bigger. So can you explain a little bit about how the nose changes with age? So you, you um, mentioned most of the salient points there. What happens is the skin gets a little bit more elastic and actually gets a little thinner and droopier. The architecture underneath also loosens up a little bit with the, the same ligaments that hold your face up, they hold your nose up. So over time, you know, it's been said that the nose and the ears, just like you mentioned, are the ones that keep growing. So uh, you and you see with time, your face thins out even more, and then the nose relatively looks bigger. So we have a lot of patients that come in after they've had one or two kids, they hit their 30s and 40s and they're like, you know, my, my nose wasn't that bad, but now it's starting to look really big on my face. I don't know what happened. So a lot of the changes uh, in the facial um, uh, thinning, the fat, the muscles, the bone, you start losing some of that. The nose then becomes more of a prominent piece in the, in the center. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, gravity changes. You know, you yeah. can't help gravity. I wish I lived on Mars, but Elon Musk didn't get me there yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> So when talking about recovery, I know we touched on this prior that obviously surgical recovery is longer than non-surgical recovery. Can you talk about the recovery of a surgical rhinoplasty? So uh, let's talk quickly about non-surgical rhinoplasty recovery. Most of the time, it, the worst that you can get is a little bit of a bruise, which you, we use such tiny needles. So 
with non-surgical rhinoplasty, there really isn't any recovery. There's no downtime, maybe a little bit of swelling and no blades or cutting and patients can go right back to work and they can do this during their lunch hour, similar to other non-surgical procedures that we do. Surgical, and I've done well over 10,000 of these, um, we used to contour the nose, do whatever we needed to do to the nose, and then we would take these chisels with a hammer and tap, tap, and break the bones. Well, we don't do that anymore. We have ultrasonic instruments, we have these fine micro instruments, so um, there is no more uh, breaking of bones. You can contour, shape, mold, do anything to the bones. And that's where the pain comes from and our, everything. So uh, there's minimal bruising, minimal to no pain. We do not even give pain medicines. And that's regularly amazing. patients tell us that, um, you know, you told me there was no pain. I didn't believe you, but there really isn't any pain. How'd you do that? You do, however, have tape on your nose and usually a little tiny uh, brace for about a week, six to seven days. So during the COVID era, patients were wearing masks. They were working from home. They're still working from home. So the actual recovery, I'll tell patients, you can work out after a week. You can get back to work after a week. But if you don't want anyone to see that you've had anything done and you may get a little tiny bruise, uh, take a week off, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing with any kind of surgery, including rhinoplasty, though, is you do have to go get anesthesia. Put, get, you know, you're, you're going to get anesthesia. You're put to sleep for a couple of hours. That day is out. Like that day, you have to recover yeah. from anesthesia. But the next day, if you're working remotely, you can get back to work. And with bruising, I know prior when they used to break the nose, you would get bruising under the eyes. Is that still the case without with the ultrasound technology? It's, it's, it's rare. Um, some people just bruise more than others. Uh, but usually you, you don't get much as if somebody, you know, maybe like really pressed hard here and that's it. Yeah. Uh, so bruising and the black eyes and all that are just a thing of the past for us. That makes sense. So with liquid rhinoplasties, typically people see the result when it's done, right? They leave the office and that's pretty much what it's going to look like. With surgical rhinoplasties, when they take that stent off after a week, is that what it's going to look like when it's fully healed? So usually I tell people the second you take the splint off, it looks amazing. You can see your result. You still have to give it 12 to 18 months to see the fine detail but the majority of the look that you have immediately after you take that splint off, albeit it's still a little swollen, is the, the dramatic difference that they were looking for. Then it puffs out a little bit because the splint's taken off. And then over time, it molds and the lymphatics drain your nose and uh, you get what you want. So, you know, you, there's always corners that you turn at three months, somewhere between the six and nine month mark and after the one year mark. So forgive me because I worked in body plastics. I didn't work in facial plastics when I was in the OR. But people typically say that the tip can be a little bit lifted in the beginning and then it drops. Is that true due to the swelling of the tissues? And the fact that it was taped up and sewn up because you have a muscle here called the depressor septi that brings your nose down. When you smile, the cheek and the zygomatic muscles pull on your cheek. So there's a lot of dynamic forces on the nose and gravity. So... It's always um, sewed in a little bit higher position. And with time, gravity and, and just relaxation of the swelling will kind of set the nose a couple of millimeters lower than what it is when you take the splint off. So people should, I tell patients, do not panic mm-hmm. when you go home and your nose is taped up, and especially when we take it off. 
Okay. So if I said to you, Dr. Kassira, I'm getting married in a year from now, would that be enough time for you to operate on me and for my rhinoplasty to be fully settled? Or is there like a time frame where you're like, you need to do this this far in advance to be fully settled by the time of that event? I mean, a, a year, Jacqueline, is ideal. I would, I would even do rhinoplasty on people who've decided on it and they have their hearts set on it. If they're going to take wedding photos, they're going to say, I wish I had done this, <laughs> you know, before the wedding photos. So even six weeks to two months prior is fine. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. a quick recovery. Okay, so... We talked a lot about surgical rhinoplasties. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about non-surgical or liquid rhinoplasties. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach the liquid rhinoplasty procedure and what products you're typically using? So the liquid rhinoplasty, the reason we call it a liquid rhinoplasty is because we're putting a liquid gel, usually a hyaluronic acid, I like to use Restylane um, and the characteristics and the weight and the consistency and the G-prime, as you know. is Like is plain Restylane L? Plain Restylane L, okay. So all you're doing is contouring the nose, and the nose, especially if those that have a curve or a hump, they're low here, then there's a bump, and then the tip is farther back, closer to your face than the hump. So you bring the tip out, and we call that projecting the nose. So you project the tip, fill in this um, start point of the nose and you end up getting a straight line. And then you also can put something at the base of the nose to um, extend that angle and you're basically creating a straight line or a straighter line and the eye appreciates straight lines. So even though you've added to the nose, you've actually added volume to the nose, it looks smaller and it looks straighter. That's usually plenty to get patients the result that they want. Now they haven't had surgery. They didn't have to have a recovery. They didn't have to explain to spouses, friends, parents, acquaintances, their <laughs> job, what they did. So this fear of criticism isn't out there. And then they can just walk around and no one knows. No yeah. one knows. It's so subtle. No one's got to know. No one's got to know. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't, they didn't have to wear a bandage. So no one yeah. really is even going to question them on it. So, And then what's interesting about that is Let's say if you did it, now you're walking around with a new nose, and that's your nose now. So people's perception of that is your nose. So is your new nose. So six months from now, if you do a rhinoplasty, the nose doesn't change that much. So really, no one figures it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you said, renting the car before you buy it. That's right. <laughs> um, and like. Does the procedure typically hurt your patients? I mean, I know I can speak about it, but I want your perspective on it. Like, how do you tell them it's going to feel? How do you tell them the recovery is going to be? And do you feel like your patients are typically in pain when they're getting this procedure? So uh, we put a little bit of numbing medicine on, let that sit for a while. Um, there are little tiny needles, and it's only going into the skin of your nose. So it shouldn't hurt that much. That the, uh, the needle stick, if you have to do it at the base of the nose, sometimes this is a sensitive area. But a good point you mentioned about pain. If they're having pain, then you need to be very careful because that kind of pain that you're talking about, if they're having any kind of acute pain, they might be having um, a complication that's called injection necrosis. So if the filler accidentally or inadvertently gets into a blood vessel and blocks off blood mm -hmm. flow, then that causes pain. So anyone who gets this done or really gets any kind of injectable filler done, if they have pain within the first hour, 
that's not normal mm-hmm. <laughs> and you should bring that to the attention of your provider. Do you find that that risk, and I, we're going to get more into risk, but do you find that risk is lower with cannula? And do you ever, just for our injectors that are listening, do you ever use cannula in your liquid rhinoplasties? I don't myself. Um, I, I've used um, needles for so many years now. I think cannulas are good. I've seen many um, uh, cannula necroses too because the smaller the gauge of the cannula, it starts acting like a needle, okay? So as long as you're careful and you do all the things that we know how to do and keep the needle moving, I think you should be fine. Cannulas in general are safer, especially if you're starting out. It's a good thing to learn to use. You know, I use cannulas in other places. Uh, The key with any kind of injectables, especially in the nose, because for everybody who's watching, the nose and these areas, there's danger areas, and we wrote a paper on it, and you can maybe share that with your, um, with your audience. Uh, these are danger areas where there's a confluence of blood vessels that come in here. So you want to stay away from these areas. You want to stay away from the sides of the nose. In general, we're taught to, do, um, to inject the middle of the nose, but um, if you are careful, cannula or not, Uh, you should have a good result. Yeah. So if you're not an injector, feel free to skip through this. But I want to go a little bit more into injection technique in terms of the plane you're injecting in. What depth are you at? So what you want to do for the the nose, you want to be immediately subcutaneous, okay? The vessels, though, run in the subcutaneous uh, and the sub-SMAS plane, okay? So what I do for the tip, I try to stay just subcutaneous in the tip because I want to contour the tip as if I'm putting some sort of graft in there. When I'm on the bridge, I want to go right down to periosteum, lift the tissues off because there's not many blood vessels there, even though I've seen plenty of midline vessels uh, when I do open rhinoplasty or any kind of rhinoplasty. And you really want to stay away from these the sides because all the perforators and all the confluence of vessels comes in around the sides and you have two columellar arteries that run up the side of your columellar so be careful going too far off the midline especially in these areas that we call the soft triangles yes so i think the biggest fear for myself as an injector and for injectors out there is obviously the worst possible complication which is a vascular occlusion that leads to blindness, right? So can you explain how that even happens? I know I can touch on it, but I feel like coming from you, it'd probably be a better explanation. So I know they say it's retrograde flow, but it, can you explain a little bit about the anatomy and what happens there? So the the nasal anatomy um, and the facial anatomy, there's a lot of um, cross um, connections. Okay, so if you... Uh, think about uh, a blood vessel coming on this side. It has all these connections to blood vessels on the other side. And that's why in surgery, it's great in surgery because there's all these connections from the eye vessels, orbital vessels, to the nasal vessels, to the cheek vessels. So we can do all sorts of flaps. If people have skin cancer, you can take a big cancer out and rotate flaps in and the skin does fine because that's so many diverse blood supply. The problem is if you get one of these if you fill in and and the filler goes into one of these blood vessels 
and it starts going back flowing because the pressure of you injecting overcomes the pressure of the of the blood coming to that area it goes back 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 and then it occludes the ophthalmic artery which is then the blood supply to your eye mm -hmm. and then you can get um you can get an obviously a very untoward result and the key with that and we mentioned this in our paper that we wrote in 2010 before really there was so much attention on all this is that you have to a go very slowly recognize that there might be something wrong and act immediately so we have the hyaluronidase or the dissolvers already drawn up and ready to go just in case that's a good that's a good idea yeah and for patients listening Dr. Kassir, you would agree that this is a very rare complication. This is a very rare complication. God forbid it happens. However, it, it is underreported. So many people who have these complications, they send their patients to me and, you know, we try to help them out with whatever stage they're in, whether it's in the nose or the face. So most of these don't get reported. So they're more common than most people think they are, but they're definitely not as common um, as um, some uh, practitioners fear they are. Yeah, so I know we talked about your study a little bit. In a meta-analysis done where they s looked at a, a population of almost 8,600 patients, there was about 30 episodes of vessel occlusion, which is 0.35%, but you feel like it might be a little bit higher than that, but still on the low side, but just a little bit higher because it's underreported. It's underreported, and... It has to do with your experience. Uh, I personally think if you've lived in the nose surgically, you just have an idea of where these vessels are, where the anatomy is. You don't necessarily have to be a surgeon to, to do great non-surgical uh, procedures, but everything helps, everything counts. So, And you just have to be very adept uh, with a needle in your hand and with that anatomy specifically and be comfortable doing it. So. Um, I mean, I don't think that's the first thing people should do once they learn uh, aesthetic <laughs> injectables. I don't think you should. I think you should stay away from these dangerous danger areas, including the nose. And, you know, kind of do basic things and do those well. You know, at, at, at the Swiss Culinary Institute, the first thing you do is it's seven years. And the first thing all you do is peel fruit. You pick fruit and peel. fruit. I should go. I'm not great at peeling fruit. So. <laughs> <laughs> And I know we talked about the risks of a non-surgical rhinoplasty, which one of them is a vessel occlusion, obviously risks of bruising and hematoma, infection with any injectable that we do is a risk. Can you talk about some of the risks from surgical rhinoplasties? So surgical rhinoplasties, um, you still have, and we have to explain to patients, you still have the potential for bleeding, scarring, and infection. Bleeding, again, is rare because with the advent of our new tools and, and uh, instruments, there just really is not much bleeding because the ultrasonic devices have only the vibration frequency for bones, so they don't even um, they don't even injure your mucosa or your blood vessels. So very little bleeding. I mean, most rhinoplasties we have maybe a few tablespoons of blood, if that's it. And then um, scarring, which we'll get to that in just a second. There, there, you have to make cuts in any kind of surgery, so. The difference between the two types of surgeries, which we'll talk about now, is uh, what people know as open rhinoplasty and closed rhinoplasty. So an open rhinoplasty is where you make an incision at the base of the nose here and lift up the whole skin soft tissue envelope 
up like the hood of a car, work, do your thing, and then close it so that only external scar is right here. The rest of them are on the inside of your nose. That's called an open rhinoplasty. The vast majority of doctors um, use this all over the world, use this type of rhinoplasty because it's just either what they were trained in, what they were comfortable in. And my position is if you can do a great job that way, great. They're, they're going to look great. You still have an incision here. I had a rhinoplasty myself, and I told the doctor, and this was a long time ago, I said, do it closed. I do not want an incision here, okay? Because regardless of how perfectly you sew it up, you're still, if I can avoid cutting through skin, blood vessels, and nerves here, I do it. So contrasting to that, if you avoid this incision and go all the way from inside the nose and work, it's like working a little jewelry box, mm -hmm. that's called a closed rhinoplasty. And if you can do that well, if you can do both surgeries well, then you can pick and choose who you want to do that on. And I've done thousands and thousands of both. So that's the difference between closed and an open rhinoplasty. How do you choose who's a candidate for an open versus a closed rhinoplasty? So usually on most primaries, I prefer to use to do a closed rhinoplasty because if I can, as I mentioned, avoid that incision, why not? And this could be anyone. They can have a crooked nose. They can have a dorsal hump. They can have any of that. You and you can, can still anything in the closed fashion, anything, and you can do it really, really. You're making really this look better and better for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if you, and especially if you're dark skin, so if you're skin type three or higher, so in other words, I'm probably, you know, skin type three, one being very light and a redhead, six being closer to like darker, blacker skin. If, if it's, remotely darker skin, I prefer to do uh, a closed approach where I don't have to make an external incision. If you, um, if you have a really botched nose or a revision rhinoplasty where we have to, everything is scarred down and we have to really rebuild the entire structure of the nose and they already have an incision from a previous rhinoplasty, then I like to go through that same incision and make it open, and it, it, it saves time, and it's a little easier. Okay, so for most revisions, not all, most revisions, and if they already have an incision, they've had an open rhinoplasty before, I prefer the open approach. Okay. And if somebody's had a rhinoplasty, I just want to connect the two procedures a little bit. Does that change anything if you wanted to get a liquid rhinoplasty before or after? So let's say I got a liquid rhinoplasty and now I'm getting a closed rhinoplasty surgically. Obviously, the filler before doesn't really do anything because it probably goes away by the time you're operating. But for people who want filler after, is there any... Because I know, like, for instance, people who have scar tissue on their lips, they're more prone to side effects like a vascular occlusion or adverse events. How does your approach towards a non-surgical rhinoplasty differ after a surgical rhinoplasty? So and I'll answer that in just a second. You were right about getting filler in your nose. We tell patients, if you get filler in your nose and even tomorrow you want a surgical rhinoplasty, you just go in there and wash all that out. Okay, so you're absolutely right about that. Now, someone who's had a surgical rhinoplasty and now there's something that they don't like or there's some you know, asymmetries or irregularities, you can go in there and try to, try to um, you know, contour those and make those nice. The problem with that is depends on what plane that surgery was done in. So if it was done in the right planes and you still have mobile skin, then you're probably okay. 
However, if the skin is really scarred down, then you're really entering a danger zone because fillers take the path of least resistance and a lot of bad things that are happening are happening when patients are have had a procedure before because now this filler, there's no proper tissue planes anymore. So you either have to use a little bit more pressure to try to inject this filler or it's just, it's stuck down somewhere and it's going to take another route. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify for people listening, filler typically lasts about a year. You would say the same, Dr. Kassir. Yes. But if you have filler and want to get a surgical rhinoplasty, you can get it anytime after filler because we could get rid of it in the OR. Correct. Correct. And we like to wash it out because... If I don't have to melt um, a filler, dissolve a filler in the face uh, with hyaluronidase, I think it's better because inevitably you get a little bit of the surrounding tissues kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, dissolve too. Yeah. And are there any contraindications, like absolute contraindications to either of the procedures? You know, we, uh, if you, if you don't think someone's, um, for me, they have to be emotionally, physically um, uh, ready for all of this, okay? Um, sometimes even financially, meaning you can't have anything stress the patients out um, for an, any procedure that they're getting done. So absolute contraindications, if I don't think they're uh, mentally ready for either procedure, they're just too nervous or they're too anxious, it's just better to wait, okay? We get uh, on all... On all all of our patients that we operate on, regardless of procedure, if we think they're completely normal and sane, we get a psychiatry evaluation on everyone. Yeah. So um, I think that's important. I think that's very important. So absolute contraindications, multiple surgeries, really stuck down tissue planes, um, being on blood thinners or, or having some sort of bleeding diathesis, and having had multiple, multiple procedures where you're just going to be chasing yourself. So it's not good for you or the patient. Yeah. Sometimes it's best to just say no. Yeah. I I say no a lot and (laughs) I'm known for that, but I stick to it because sometimes people want things that aren't always best for them, you know, in the long run. And obviously I know this is probably self-explanatory, but if they're pregnant or lactating, they cannot get a surgical rhinoplasty and you cannot get a liquid rhinoplasty either. I know there's some people who will bend the rules, but I always say there's not enough studies done on filler in pregnant and lactating patients. So they never took pregnant and lactating patients and they were like, let's just try filler on you and see what happens. Do you feel the same way where you don't do liquid rhinoplasties on pregnant or lactating women? I usually don't like to do anything on pregnant or lactating women uh, simply because, I mean, definitely no neuromodulators like mm-hmm. Botox or anything. The, the the bottom line is if it's going to cause any kind of a stress, and it depends on what trimester they're in, for the, for the pregnant mother that could be transferred or, God forbid, cause any kind of contractions, it's just easier to wait. That yeah. time passes anyway, and usually if they waited that long, they can wait a little and longer. And then you get the mommy makeover after. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's really all I have. Is there anything else that you want to add about these procedures or anything you want listeners to know when it comes to liquid rhinoplasties or surgical rhinoplasties? I would say you've thought about it for a long time. These are both two good options. You have to see someone who's really, really experienced and versed in both and just have a conversation. There's nothing lost having a conversation and getting 
an, an opinion and maybe even multiple opinions and then reading researching then you can kind of feel comfortable with your physician or your provider and then make a decision and if you're really really terrified start with non-surgical yeah all right well thank you guys so much for listening thank you so much dr kusir for doing this with me out of your busy day which you probably had the most insane day ever so i really appreciate you being on the podcast be sure to follow him on instagram it's at dr kusir correct dr kusir and if you have any questions feel free to dm us you'll see us next week on the j spot 